PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. I wanted to look at other factors besides low back pain and really see what else is there that can influence this asymmetry. We may need to acknowledge that the asymmetries are there but not focus on those as primary targets for things. I think the appeal of the subgrouping is that it's immediately clinically applicable and I think that's what keeps a lot of people interested in it. When Julie Hyde had mentioned that 10%, an asymmetry of 10% could be looked upon as an important difference clinically, I think now we could say probably not. Welcome to this PTJ Discussion Podcast. Factors Associated with Paraspinal Muscle Asymmetry, a study of male twins. Researchers at the University of Alberta recruited over 200 adult male twins and looked for factors associated with paraspinal muscle asymmetry. It appears that such asymmetry is a clinical finding with little to no significance. Authors Dr. Maurice Fortin and Dr. Michel Battier discuss their findings with Dr. Mark Bishop and Dr. Stephen George. And now, our moderator, PTJ editorial board member, Dr. Leo Costa. Welcome to this PTJ podcast about a paper entitled Factors Associated with Paraspinal Muscle Asymmetry in Size and Composition in a General Population of Men. This paper was written by Dr. Maurice Fortin, Dr. Yan Guan, Dr. Michel Battier, all from the University of Alberta, Canada. My name is Leo Costa, and I'm an editorial board member of the Physical Therapy Journal. We are very happy to have both Marie and Michelle with us, as well as Dr. Mark Bishop and Stephen George from the University of Florida. I would like to ask the participants to present themselves. Firstly, Dr. Marie Fortin. Hello, everyone. My name is Marie Fortin. I recently completed my PhD degree at the University of Alberta. And I'm now doing my postdoc at McGill University Health Center. And my research interests are mainly to investigate the relationship between paraspinal muscle change in morphology and composition and spinal pathology. Thank you. Secondly, I'd like to welcome Dr. Michel Battier. Hello, my name is Michel Battier. I am a professor at the University of Alberta, and I hold a Canada Research Chair in Common Spinal Disorders. And my research interests over the last 20 or so years have been wide-ranging, but I have a particular interest in looking at possible underlying pathology for low back pain problems. Thank you. Finally, I would like to welcome our content experts. Firstly, Professor Mark Bishop. Hello, everybody. My name is Mark Bishop. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Florida. My particular interests are in using manual therapy to manage musculoskeletal pain, but more recently being involved in examining factors that change when people transition from pain-free to painful states. Thank you. And now, finally, Dr. Stephen George. Hello, everyone. My name is Steve George. I'm also at the University of Florida, and I'm an associate professor in the assistant department chair. I have some expertise in musculoskeletal pain, have done clinical research across many different conditions, including low back pain, and I'm also an editorial board member for PTJ. Okay, good. So let's get our podcast started. Paraspinal muscle asymmetry has been associated with prognosis in patients with low back pain. It is still unknown if muscle asymmetry can be named as a possible cause or as a consequence of low back pain. 
Although there are some good studies available, in fact, we still don't understand very well possible factors that could influence these differences in size and composition of paraspinal muscles. Some of these factors were explored on this very interesting study that recruited twins, which allow us to consider about familial aggregation and genetic influences. This is an exciting research field. It is a pleasure for PTJ to have the authors of this study with us today. I would like first to invite Dr. Maris Fortin to summarize this study for us. Could you do this for us, please? Sure. So this paper really aims to investigate possible determinants of paraspinal muscle asymmetry in size and in composition besides low back pain and pathology. It is important to be aware of other factors that may influence or lead to such muscle variation before we judge them as a risk for the presence of low back pain and pathology. So in this study, we used 202 men to investigate the association between the multifidus and the active spinal asymmetry in size and composition. And we looked at a wide range of factors. So just to name a few, we looked at age, BMI, lean body mass, and NS. We also looked at the amount of physical activity that was done at work and at leisure, disc degeneration, family aggregation because we used a sample of twins. And we also looked at three variables for low back pain, including low back pain frequency, intensity, and visibility over the past 12 months. Just to have a brief summary of the result, we found no consistent association with low back pain history. And we did find some association with family aggregation and disc height narrowing, and people that were more sedentary either at work or at leisure had greater paraspinal muscle asymmetry. So in conclusion, it really questioned the importance of looking at paraspinal muscle asymmetry in physical assessment and to use this as a target for our rehabilitation. Great. Thank you. Mark, could you please comment about this study? What do you think about it, the findings? Well, congratulations, Maurice. Really enjoyed reading this, and it was obviously very well done. I was completely surprised by the results that there wasn't a big association with pain frequency and the asymmetry. I mean, you even pointed out in the intro that there's been a couple of studies more recently that have shown very weak associations with pain and the asymmetry there. When you started the study, were you thinking that asymmetry was going to be a predisposing factor for back pain or a result of back pain? It's funny that you're asking this question because I actually did another study that really tried to clarify this. In this study, I wanted to look at other factors besides low back pain and really see what else is there that can influence this asymmetry. So in the end, I didn't think that low back pain would be a big association there because in the literature, when you look at low back pain duration or if you look at the severity of the symptoms, the association is always pretty weak. I think the main motivation really was that since looking through the literature over the last decade, there has been a fair amount of interest in quite a number of reports looking at asymmetry in muscle cross-sectional area or side-to-side differences in composition and attaching some meaning to those differences. Now, whether those differences are thought to be markers for pathology or back pain-related problems or whether they are thought to be potential predictors for those things, of course, can't be sorted out in a cross-sectional study. It could be one or the other, if either. But I think it was more the idea that if we are placing importance on those differences when we observe them clinically, are there other factors that could be influencing those differences beyond back pain-related issues that we should be aware of so that we don't misinterpret or overinterpret those findings? Great. Steve, would you like to comment on this? 
Sure. For the audience in mind here, I'm just wondering if you could explain a little bit about the use of the twin cohort for this for the clinical audience who may not be familiar with some of the strengths or was this cohort specifically designed for this question in mind and just give a background about this because it's not something we see often in our literature, but obviously we've learned a lot about back pain from these studies, especially from this group. The twin spine study has been going on for many years, I think close to 20 now, but we have looked at twins primarily because we've been interested in factors associated with spinal degeneration and pathology and pain, and we've been interested in individual physical factors or constitutional factors such as genetics, environmental, and behavioral factors and the role that they may play in this degeneration, other types of spinal degeneration, pain, and pathology. And so while the study wasn't designed specifically to look at muscle, It was designed specifically to look at questions such as those that are tackled in this particular study and in other studies that are within Maurice's doctoral research on muscle. Do you want to comment something, Mark, on this? Actually, I have a question for Steve. Go for it. Steve, the idea in here about the family aggregation, you've done a little bit of work with genetic factors related to pain. What would be a way to follow up on that? Well, and I think Michelle will have something to say about this too. We've done some different methodology with genetics as it relates to pain and ours have been more in association studies and looking at genes that may be involved with perpetuating the pain experience, whether it's through modulation of pain through different receptors or enzymes in the nervous system or modulating the inflammatory cascade. We haven't looked at that actually in low back pain specific cohorts, but we've looked at it in shoulder pain cohorts. But ours has been more looking at the experience of pain phenotype beyond the pathology. Yeah, just going on a little bit more about what Steve has just mentioned, we have found that, as have others, that there is a genetic component to pain. But how you define pain in this case is really important. And so one thing that we found was that depending upon how you define the pain experience, you may find more or less of a genetic contribution. And our definitions of more severe back pain problems seem to have a higher genetic component. But going back to the study, it's probably important to note that here we looked at familial aggregation. And familial aggregation is a bit of a surrogate for genetic influences. And familial aggregation really just means that a trait is aggregating within family members so that you see greater similarities within family members than you would expect to be see by chance between two individuals in the population. And in this study, we certainly found familial aggregation, particularly in asymmetry and muscle composition. But familial aggregation, like I say, it can be influenced by genetic influences. It can also be influenced by shared mental factors. So it's a little different than genetic influences alone. Okay. I wanted to move on on a different level of question, maybe a more practical one. I was just thinking about the findings of this study and remembering like 10, 15 years ago when Judy Hyde and Paul Hodges published their papers saying about the importance of the muscles, talking about cross-sectional area. And the more I read about this, it seems that this theory is not going anywhere. 
So my question for most of you guys, on a practical level, how physical therapy should react to the findings of these studies and for all other studies that are now more recent, just don't bother about muscle asymmetry? I agree with you. I think that the literature is conflicting, so it's hard to get the main message in a big picture. I think there's still room to look a little bit into it. I think it would be great to try to do some comprehensive study to try to correlate those changes that we see on MI and the biomechanical dysfunction of the muscle to confirm their clinical relevance. I wouldn't say at this point to completely dismiss this information, but I think that it may not be a primary result of low back pain. Yeah, I think the one thing that seems pretty clear through recent research is that when Julie Hyde had mentioned that 10%, an asymmetry of 10%, could be looked upon as an important difference clinically, I think now we could say probably not. Because when we see asymptomatic populations that have asymmetries greater than 10%, I think we can attach very little meaning to that particular threshold. Okay, so you think that the threshold should be higher than 10%? Well, if we do attach meaning to a threshold, I think clearly it has to be higher than 10%. The asymmetry, I think we'll need to look at that seriously as well before we get too enthusiastic about another threshold. That's a good point. A quick follow-up question for Michelle. Is this eerily parallel to disc degeneration or not? Yeah, I haven't thought of it that way, but I think that is a good point. I think with so many things that we see in terms of variations in morphology and degenerative findings, they have, in general, very loose links to clinical observations that we care about. So I suppose we always have to be a little cautious in placing too much importance on those observations that we see on imaging and so on. Okay. Mark, do you want to comment on something? Only that I completely agree. It's time to move on a little bit from the asymmetry and morphology position. I don't know if changing a threshold is going to make things more important. There's a couple of recent studies looking at electrical function of muscles and trying to come up with asymmetry measures there, and none of those have very strong associations with pain. So we may need to acknowledge that the asymmetries are there but not focus on those as primary targets for things. So what do you think clinicians should do on their clinic examination if they don't have to look for muscle asymmetry? Is there any other aspects that you think would be fundamental for patients with back pain? Any comments from you, Steve? Sure. I think maybe one of the reasons asymmetry is valued clinically but doesn't show up as much in the research findings is maybe we need to think about partitioning out what that asymmetry could represent and thinking about structuring the clinical exam. Maurice mentioned strength and I would think an endurance test and perhaps the motor control component. Maybe those are all aspects of what the symmetry could represent that could be a more direct contribution to the back pain. And I think each of those might lead to completely different treatment approaches depending on the findings instead of just being reliant on the observation of symmetry, seeing more what the consequences are. All right. Do you want to add something, Mark? No, just to agree, I don't think searching for morphological asymmetry is going to be useful for someone performing a clinical eval be much better to look for movement control, movement pattern, function, that type of thing. And Mark, what about separating these patients into subgroups? Oh, I think eventually if there's a way to identify subgroups of people who are going to benefit very specifically from 
types of motor control programs, and that would be useful. There's a couple of recent meta-analyses that have come out showing that motor control exercise is better than general exercise and superior to some other therapies, so it's probably going to be somewhere we should be spending some time looking. Over the last 30 years since I've been in physical therapy, subgrouping that can help direct more effective treatment has sort of been the holy grail in physical therapy. And I'm still hopeful, I'm always hopeful it would be such a great thing in this large, difficult area of idiopathic, nonspecific back pain that we deal with. But I think it's been a pretty challenging goal to date. I think that's a fair assessment. I think subgrouping is a challenging ideal and there are some good models and there's some failed models. I think the appeal of the subgrouping is that it's immediately clinically applicable and I think that's what keeps a lot of people interested in it. I think, again, within the confines of this paper, if I were thinking of subgrouping approaches related to asymmetry, it would be linked to the motor control and especially in the chronic populations where I think we have a pretty good idea of what some of the subgroups look like for the acute to subacute, which also, by the way, have the highest natural recovery rate. We're not nearly as good at subgrouping ideas for the more persistent chronic group. And as I mentioned, if I were looking for myself or doctoral students, I think it would be looking at getting an idea if this is someone who may have some activation problems, identify them and see if they do preferentially benefit and have larger treatment effects from some of the treatments that Mark mentioned that have been found to be favorable in general trials that haven't taken a subgrouping approach. Okay. And the final question before we wrap up everything, what do you think is next, Maurice? What should we do? Well, now I don't know if I should say because it seems like, I mean, I agree that, you know, maybe we should move on on this topic and look like Michelle was suggesting at something else. But I think that one limitation of this study is actually the measurements we're taking at rest. So is this asymmetry the same when we are physically loading the muscle? Does it remain there? I think that this is something that hasn't been looked at. So to conclude this topic, I think that this is something that we should look to, you know, make sure that there's nothing there. Okay. So let's go. Leo, can I chime in just for a second? This is Steve. Yeah, sure. At some point, I needed to shamelessly plug because this seems as good a time as any. I have a particular study in mind that was published in PTJ in September. I was involved with a clinical trial, and part of the secondary analysis of this clinical trial was we did look at some of the things that Maurice mentioned about the activation and resting, and it may make a good companion read for this primary paper because we did look at two different training regimens to see if we could see differences We were originally hypothesizing that we would see differences in hypertrophy based on a core stabilization approach or what we call the traditional exercise approach, which was really sit-up focused trunk training and included ultrasound imaging and measured many muscles, including the transversus abdominis, the internal external obliques, the lumbar multifidus, and the rectus abdominis. And we did not see a lot of changes. It was a 12-week training period, but one of the things we did see with the core stabilization was more symmetry at rest and also with activation. I think that type of study definitely supports this one where, at least in primary prevention, the increase in symmetry didn't seem to have an obvious preventative effect in our military cohort. So I think even some of the longitudinal evidence out there is very consistent I heard earlier the hesitation with this being a cross-sectional study, but this particular paper published in the same journal right around the same time 
converges quite nicely with these findings. I'll also just mention that Maurice has done, or we have done a couple additional studies that are under review right now, but basically they are generally supporting the findings of this cross-sectional look at things in terms of not seeing a lot of importance longitudinally. Okay. I would like to wrap up our podcast now. Marie, any final comments? I think that, as Michelle mentioned, my next study also shows that even when we look at longitudinal effects of low back pain and the change in muscle, there's no relation between how your muscle change over time in relation to your low back pain history. Hey, Michelle, do you want to add something for us to wrap up our podcast? I think the main message was that we expected initially activity, thinking that most physical activity has an asymmetrical component to it, might be associated with more asymmetry, but we didn't find that, which suggests that maybe if you are just more physically active, the muscles are active in general and we're seeing less asymmetry. So I think that if one is interested in asymmetry, studying it either from a research standpoint or looking at it clinically, most of the factors that we looked at do not seem to be particularly important in terms of explaining that asymmetry. Thank you. Mark, do you want to finish up with us? Sure. I don't have any particular comments to add, except I enjoyed participating and listening to everyone discuss it. Very interesting. Okay. Steve? I think one of the lingering questions out there related to symmetry seems to be the cause and effect, and they certainly don't seem to have a concurrent relationship, and our study doesn't seem to be predictive, and I think some of the work from me suggests that it's not predictive, so I guess that would leave the last gasp for muscle symmetry interest maybe in longstanding chronic populations, but certainly the clinical research to date would suggest that it not be a primary component of examination or treatment. Thank you. I agree with you, Steve. I've learned a lot from this paper. There's a lot of key messages, and maybe the most important one is that asymmetry, maybe, I can't say that that's the end, but it looks like it's not as strong as it was predicted a couple of years ago. So I would like to thank everyone, especially to the authors, Michelle and Maurice. Thank you very much for participating. Mark and Steve for the wonderful contribution on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.